Chapter Three of Saint Francis of Assisi by G. K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Francis the Fighter. According to one tale, which, if not true, would be none the less typical, the very name of Saint Francis was not so much a name as a nickname there would be something akin to his familiar and popular instinct in the notion that he was nicknamed very much as an ordinary schoolboy might be called frenchy at school according to this version his name was not francis at all but john and his companions called him francesco or the little frenchman because of his passion for the french poetry of the troubadours the more probable story is that his mother had named him John when he was born in the absence of his father, who shortly returned from a visit to France, where his commercial success had filled him with such an enthusiasm for French taste and social usage that he gave his son the new name signifying the Frank or Frenchman. In either case, his name has a certain significance as connecting francis from the first with what he himself regarded as the romantic fairyland of the troubadours the name of the father was pietro bernardone and he was a substantial citizen of the guild of the cloth merchants in the town of assisi it is hard to describe the position of such a man without some appreciation of the position of such a guild and even of such a town it did not exactly correspond to anything that is meant in modern times either by a merchant or a man of business or a tradesman or anything that exists under the conditions of capitalism bernardone may have employed people but he was not an employer that is he did not belong to an employing class as distinct from an employed class the person we definitely hear of his employing is his son francis who, one is tempted to guess, was about the last person that any man of business would employ if it were convenient to employ anybody else. He was rich, as a peasant may be rich, by the work of his own family. But he evidently expected his own family to work in a way almost as plain as a peasant's. He was a prominent citizen, but he belonged to a social order which existed to prevent him from being too prominent to be a citizen. He kept all such people on their own simple level, and no prosperity connoted that escape from drudgery by which in modern times the lad might have seemed to be a lord or a fine gentleman or something other than the cloth merchant's son. This is a rule that is proved even in the exception. Francis was one of those people who are popular with everybody in any case, and his guileless swagger as a troubadour and leader of french fashions made him a sort of romantic ringleader among the young men of the town he threw money about both in extravagance and benevolence in a way native to a man who never all of his life exactly understood what money was this moved his mother to mingle exultation and exasperation and she said as any tradesman's wife might say anywhere he is more like a prince than our son. But one of the earliest glimpses we have of him shows him as simply selling bales of cloth from a booth in the market, which his mother may or may not have believed to be one of the habits of princes. This first glimpse of the young man in the market is symbolic in more ways than one. 
an incident occurred which is perhaps the shortest and sharpest summary that could be given of certain curious things which were a part of his character long before it was transfigured by transcendental faith while he was selling velvet and fine embroideries to some solid merchant of the town a beggar came imploring alms evidently in a somewhat tactless manner it was a rude and simple society that there were no laws to punish a starving man for expressing his need for food such as have been established in a more humanitarian age and the lack of any organized police permitted such persons to pester the wealthy without any great danger but there was i believe in many places a local custom of the guild forbidding outsiders to interrupt a fair bargain and it is possible that some such thing put the merchant more than normally in the wrong francis had all his life a great liking for people who had been put hopelessly in the wrong on this occasion he seems to have dealt with the double interview with rather a divided mind certainly with distraction possibly with irritation perhaps he was all the more uneasy because of the almost fastidious standard of manners that came to him quite naturally all are agreed that politeness flowed from him from the first like one of the public fountains in such a sunny italian marketplace he might have written among his own poems as his own motto that verse of mr belloc's poem of courtesy it is much less than courage of heart or holiness yet in my walks it seems to me that the grace of god is in courtesy nobody ever doubted that francis bernardone had courage of heart even of the most ordinary manly and military sort and a time was to come when there was quite as little doubt about the holiness and the grace of god but i think that if there was one thing about which he was punctilious it was punctiliousness if there was one thing of which so humble a man could be said to be proud he was proud of good manners only behind his perfectly natural urbanity were wider and even wilder possibilities of which we get the first flash in this trivial incident anyhow francis was evidently torn two ways with the botheration of two talkers but finished his business with the merchant somehow and when he had finished it found the beggar was gone francis leapt from his booth left all the bales of velvet and embroidery behind him apparently unprotected and went racing across the marketplace like an arrow from the bow still running he threaded the labyrinth of the narrow and crooked streets of the little town looking for his beggar whom he eventually discovered and loaded that astonished mendicant with money then he straightened himself so to speak and swore before god that he would never all his life refuse help to a poor man the sweeping simplicity of this undertaking is extremely characteristic never was any man so little afraid of his own promises his life was one riot of rash vows of rash vows that turned out right the first biographers of francis naturally alive with the great religious revolution that he wrought equally naturally looked back to his first years chiefly for omens and signs of such a spiritual earthquake but writing at a greater distance we shall not decrease that dramatic effect 
but rather increase it if we realize that there was not at this time any external sign of anything particularly mystical about the young man he had not anything of that early sense of his vocation that has belonged to some of the saints over and above his main ambition to win fame as a french poet he would seem to have most often thought of winning fame as a soldier he was born kind he was brave in the normal boyish fashion but he drew the line both in kindness and bravery pretty well where most boys would have drawn it for instance he had the normal horror of leprosy of which few normal people felt any need to be ashamed he had the love of gay and bright apparel which was inherent in the heraldic taste of medieval times and seems altogether to have been rather a festive figure if he did not paint the town red he would probably have preferred to paint it all the colors of the rainbow as in a medieval picture but in this story of the young man in gay garments scampering after the vanishing beggars and rags there are certain notes of his natural individuality that must be assumed from first to last for instance there is the spirit of swiftness in a sense he continued running for the rest of his life as he ran after the beggar because nearly all the errands he ran on were errands of mercy there appeared in his portraiture a mere element of mildness which was true in the truest sense but is easily misunderstood a certain precipitancy was the very poise of his soul this saint should be represented among the other saints as angels were sometimes represented in pictures of angels with flying feet or even with feathers in the spirit of the text that makes angels winds and messengers a flaming fire it is a curiosity of language that courage actually means running and some of our skeptics will no doubt demonstrate that courage really means running away but his courage was running in the sense of rushing with all his gentleness there was originally something of impatience in his impetuosity the psychological truth about it illustrates very well the modern muddle about the word practical if we mean by what is practical what is most immediately practicable we mean merely what is easiest in that sense st francis was very unpractical and his ultimate aims were very unworldly but if we mean by practicality a preference for prompt effort and energy over doubt and delay he was very practical indeed some might call him a madman but he was the very reverse of a dreamer nobody would be likely to call him a man of business but he was very emphatically a man of action in some of his early experiments he was rather too much of a man of action he acted too soon and was too practical to be prudent but at every turn of his extraordinary career we shall find him flinging himself round corners in the most unexpected fashion as when he flew through the crooked streets after the beggar another element implied in the story which was already partially a natural instinct before it became a supernatural ideal was something that had never perhaps been wholly lost in those little republics of medieval italy it was something very puzzling to some people 
something clearer as a rule to southerners than to northerners and i think to catholics than to protestants the quite natural assumption of the equality of men it has nothing necessarily to do with the franciscan love for men on the contrary one of its merely practical tests is the equality of the duel perhaps a gentleman will never be fully an egalitarian until he can really quarrel with his servant but it was an antecedent condition of the franciscan brotherhood and we feel it in this early and secular incident francis i fancy felt a real doubt about which he must attend to the beggar or the merchant and having attended to the merchant he turned to attend to the beggar he thought of them as two men this is a thing much more difficult to describe in a society from which it is absent but it was the original basis of the whole business it was why the popular movement arose in that sort of place and that sort of man his imaginative magnanimity afterwards rose like a tower to starry heights that might well seem dizzy and even crazy but it was founded on this high tableland of human equality i have taken this the first among a hundred tales of the youth of st francis and dwelt on its significance a little because until we have learned to look for the significance there will often seem to be little but a sort of light sentiment in telling the story st francis is not a proper person to be patronized with merely pretty stories there are any number of them but they are too often used so as to be a sort of sentimental sediment of the medieval world instead of being as the saint emphatically is a challenge to the modern world we must take his real human development somewhat more seriously and the next story in which we get a real glimpse of it is in a very different setting but in exactly the same way it opens as if by accident certain abysses of the mind and perhaps of the unconscious mind francis still looks more or less like an ordinary young man and it is only when we look at him as an ordinary young man that we realize what an extraordinary young man he must be war had broken out between assisi and perugia it is now fashionable to say in a satirical spirit that such wars did not so much break out as go on indefinitely between the city-states of medieval italy it will be enough to say here that if one of these medieval wars had really gone on without stopping for a century it might possibly have come within a remote distance of killing as many people as we kill in a year in one of our great modern scientific wars between our great modern industrial empires but the citizens of the medieval republic were certainly under the limitation of only being asked to die for the things with which they had always lived the houses they inhabited the shrines they venerated and the rulers and representatives they knew and had not the larger vision calling them to die for the latest rumors about remote colonies as reported in anonymous newspapers and if we infer from our own experience that war paralyzed civilization we must at least admit that these warring towns turned out a number of paralytics who go by the names of dante and michelangelo aristo and titian leonardo and columbus 
not to mention Catherine of Siena and the subject of this story. While we lament all this local patriotism as a hubbub of the Dark Ages, it must seem a rather curious fact that about three-quarters of the greatest men who ever lived came out of these little towns and were often engaged in these little wars. It remains to be seen what will ultimately come out of our large towns, but there has been no sign of anything of this sort since they became large, and I have sometimes been haunted by a fancy of my youth that these things will not come till there is a city wall round Clapham and the Tuscan is rung at night to arm the citizens of Wimbledon. Anyhow, the Tuscan was rung in Assisi, and the citizens armed, and among them Francis, the son of the cloth merchant. He went out to fight with some company of lancers, and in some fight or foray or other, he and his little band were taken prisoners. To me it seems most probable that there had been some tale of treason or cowardice about the disaster, for we are told that there was one of the captives with whom his fellow prisoners flatly refused to associate even in prison. And when this happens in such circumstances, it is generally because the military blame for the surrender is thrown on some individual. Anyhow, somebody noted a small but curious thing, though it might have seemed rather negative than positive. Francis, we are told, moved among his captive companions with all his characteristic courtesy and even conviviality. Liberal and hilarious, as somebody said of him, resolved to keep up their spirits and his own. And when he came across the mysterious outcast, traitor or coward or whatever he was called, he simply treated him exactly like all the rest, neither with coldness nor compassion, but with the same unaffected gaiety and good fellowship. But if there had been present in that prison someone with a sort of second sight about the truth and trend of spiritual things, he might have known he was in the presence of something new and seemingly almost anarchic, a deep tide driving out to uncharted seas of charity. For in this sense there was something really wanting in Francis of Assisi something to which he was blind that he might see better and more beautiful things. All those limits in good fellowship and good form, all those landmarks of social life that divide the tolerable and intolerable, all those social scruples and conventional conditions that are normal and even noble in ordinary men, all those things that hold many decent societies together could never hold this man at all. He liked as he liked. He seems to have liked everybody, but especially those whom everybody disliked him for liking. Something very vast and universal was already present in that narrow dungeon. And such a seer might have seen in its darkness that red halo of caritas caritatum, which marks one saint among saints as well as among men. He might have heard the first whisper of that wild blessing that afterwards took the form of a blasphemy. He listens to those to whom God himself will not listen. But though such a seer might have seen such a truth, it is exceedingly doubtful if Francis himself saw it. He had acted out of an unconscious largeness, 
or even in the fine medieval phrase largesse within himself something that might almost have been lawless if it had not been reaching out to a more divine law but it is doubtful whether he yet knew that the law was divine it is evident that he had not at this time any notion of abandoning the military still less adopting the monastic life it is true that there is not as pacifists and prigs imagine the least inconsistency between loving men and fighting them if we fight them fairly and for a good cause but it seems to me that there was more than this involved that the mind of the young man was really running towards a military morality in any case about this time the first calamity crossed his path in the form of a malady which was to revisit him many times and hamper his headlong career sickness made him more serious but one fancies it would only have made him a more serious soldier or even more serious about soldiering and while he was recovering something rather larger than the little feuds and raids of the italian towns opened an avenue of adventure and ambition the crown of sicily a considerable centre of controversy at the time was apparently claimed by a certain gautier de brienne and the papal cause to aid which gautier was called in aroused enthusiasm among a number of young assisians including francis who proposed to march into apulia on the count's behalf perhaps his french name had something to do with it for it must never be forgotten that though this world was in one sense a world of little things it was a world of little things concerned about great things there was more internationalism in the lands dotted with tiny republics than in the huge homogeneous impenetrable national divisions of today the legal authority of the assisian magistrates might hardly reach farther than a bowshot from their high embattled city walls but their sympathies might be with the ride of the normans through sicily or the palace of the troubadours at toulouse with the emperor enthroned in the german forests or the great pope dying in the exile of salerno above all it must be remembered that when the interests of an age are mainly religious they must be universal nothing can be more universal than the universe and there are several things about the religious position at that particular moment which modern people not unnaturally fail to realize for one thing modern people naturally think of people so remote as ancient people and even early people we feel vaguely that these things happened in the first ages of the church the church was already a good deal more than a thousand years old that is the church was then rather older than france is now a great deal older than england is now and she looked old then almost as old as she does now possibly older than she does now the church looked like great charlemagne with a long white beard who had already fought a hundred wars with the heathen and in the legend was bidden by an angel to go forth and fight once more though he was two hundred years old the church had topped her thousand years and turned the corner of the second thousand she had come through the dark ages in which nothing could be done except desperate fighting against the barbarians and the stubborn repetition of the creed 
the creed was still being repeated after the victory or escape but it is not unnatural to suppose that there was something a little monotonous about the repetition the church looked old then as now and there were some who thought her dying then as now in truth orthodoxy was not dead but it may have been dull it is certain that some people began to think it dull the troubadours of the provencal movement had already begun to take that turn or twist toward oriental fancies and the paradox of pessimism which always comes to europeans as something fresh when their own sanity seems to be something stale it is likely enough that after all those centuries of hopeless war without and ruthless asceticism within the official orthodoxy seemed to be something stale the freshness and freedom of the first christians seemed then as much as now a lost and almost prehistoric age of gold rome was still more rational than anything else the church was really wiser but it may well have seemed wearier than the world there was something more adventurous and alluring perhaps about the mad metaphysics that had been blown across out of asia dreams were gathering like dark clouds over the midi to break in a thunder of anathema and civil war only the light lay on the great plain round rome but the light was blank and the plain was flat and there was no stir in the still air and the immemorial silence about the sacred town high in the dark house of assisi francesco berdadone slept and dreamed of arms there came to him in the darkness a vision splendid with swords patterned after the cross in the crusading fashion of spears and shields and helmets hung in a high armory all bearing the sacred sign when he awoke he accepted the dream as a trumpet bidding him to the battlefield and rushed out to take horse and arms he delighted in all the exercises of chivalry and was evidently an accomplished cavalier and fighting man by the tests of the tournament and the camp he would doubtless at any time have preferred a christian sort of chivalry but it seems clear that he was also in a mood which thirsted for glory though in him that glory would always have been identical with honor he was not without some vision of that wreath of laurel which caesar had left for all the latins as he rode out to war the great gate in the deep wall of assisi resounded with his last boast i shall come back a great prince a little way along his road his sickness rose again and threw him it seemed highly probable in the light of his impetuous temper that he had ridden away long before he was fit to move and in the darkness of this second and far more desolating interruption he seems to have had another dream in which a voice said to him you have mistaken the meaning of the vision return to your own town and francis trailed back in his sickness to assisi a very dismal and disappointed and perhaps even derided figure with nothing to do but to wait for what should happen next it was his first descent into a dark ravine that is called the valley of humiliation which seemed to him very rocky and desolate but in which he was afterwards to find many flowers but he was not only disappointed and humiliated he was also very much puzzled and bewildered 
he still firmly believed that his two dreams must have meant something and he could not imagine what they could possibly mean it was while he was drifting one may even say mooning about the streets of assisi and the fields outside the city wall that an incident occurred to him which has not always been immediately connected with the business of the dreams but which seems to me the obvious culmination of them he was riding listlessly in some wayside place apparently in the open country when he saw a figure coming along the road towards him and halted for he saw it was a leper and he knew instantly that his courage was challenged not as the world challenges but as one would challenge who knew the secrets of the heart of a man what he saw advancing was not the banner and spears of perugia from which it never occurred to him to shrink nor the armies that fought for the crown of sicily of which he had always thought as a courageous man thinks of mere vulgar danger francis bernardone saw his fear coming up the road towards him the fear that comes from within and not without though it stood white and horrible in the sunlight for once in the long rush of his life his soul must have stood still then he sprang from his horse knowing nothing between stillness and swiftness and rushed on the leper and threw his arms round him it was the beginning of a long vocation of ministry among many lepers for whom he did many services to this man he gave what money he could and mounted and rode on we do not know how far he rode or with what sense of the things around him but it is said that when he looked back he could see no figure on the road end of chapter three